0: Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Surab Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have a fantastic episode for you guys today. Uh, A little bit of level setting. Um, If it seems like there were some cuts in the podcast... There were, uh, we had um, someone unexpected crash the studio halfway through recording. Uh, Ron DeSantis was actually in the building. We got to talk to him a little bit. Uh, he doesn't appear on the podcast itself, but I think on YouTube we'll throw up a picture here of uh, of us talking to to the big guy. He's uh, he's doing well. He's making moves, and uh, we're excited to to do stuff with him moving forward as well. But um, without further ado, I want to talk a little bit about the guests that we're going to have on American Moments: A Moment of Truth this week. We have on Sam Hammond. Mr. Ham and Cheese himself. On Twitter, he is (laughs) Ham and Cheese. He's the Lunchable of the Moment of Truth podcast. Um, Sam Hammond is the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Niskanen Center. Now, you may say, Niskanen, those are those crunchy neoliberal uh, libertarian types. And it's true, uh, but Sam's actually pretty great, and he's pretty interesting. You may not agree with everything you hear from him today, but he brings a perspective to everything from poverty and welfare to industrial policy and tech that we think Is sorely needed. He previously worked as an economist for the Government of Canada, specializing in rural economic development, and as a graduate research fellow for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University as you can tell, very much a reformed libertarian. Uh, his research focuses on the effectiveness of cash transfers in alleviating poverty, and how free markets can be complemented by robust systems of social insurance. I think we had a good time talking to him. We, we shot the breeze a little bit. We're buddies with Sam out here in Washington, D.C., and he has a really interesting, I think, well-formed perspective on all things poverty, welfare, social safety net, and, and how to build a, a just regime in general. Uh, he comes from a fundamentally different perspective than I think Nick and I do. You know, we're you know, hard charging religious social conservatives. He's more, I think. I think I call him at one point in the podcast a, a bloodless technocrat, which I hope he adds to his Twitter bio.
1: Well, so here's the thing, right? This this is kind of what I'm going through. Like as I'm reading this bio, you know, uh, his research focuses on you know the effectiveness of cash transfers and alleviating poverty and how free markets can be complemented by robust systems of social insurance. That's what I believe, plus social conservatism.
0: Yeah. Hence, how I arrive at. New Deal conservatism. (laughs) 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 Nick has decided to get us permanently canceled by endorsing various parts of FDR's program during this episode, so enjoy that and look forward to it. But uh, I think it was a fantastic episode. I think you'll learn a lot if you listen through all the way. Uh, If you don't know what the child tax credit is and you're expected to talk intelligently about it in daily life this is the podcast for you. Um, I certainly learned a bunch of new things on this podcast. We think you guys will too. And so without further ado, we'll now go to Sam Hammond of the Niscan center. Sam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to find out how people got to the point where they are. Now you have a fun story of how you ended up being in American, uh, political economic thinking how did you end up doing this stuff
2: yeah so I mean I was uh, born and raised in Nova Scotia Canada trailer park boys territory um, <laughs> you know one of those classic uh, internet nerds <laughs> so I spent a lot of my time sort of reading you know, libertarian philosophy um, I'm cons- so sorry cons- conservative, yeah, conservative, <laughs> like any teenager does yeah yeah conservative thinking it's actually interesting a lot of my own sort of firsthand experience has seen that kind of you know how m- how, you know, in Canada, really big figure like Stefan Molyneux, you know, transitions from being like very uh, focused on libertarian philosophy, like why we can privatize the roads and so forth to, um, you know, this, uh, where he is now. <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, you know, always being really interested in, in, in uh, American public policy and just public policy in general. Um, broadly from a free market perspective, mm-hmm. and also really interested in like the George Mason University sort of ecosystem. Um, Were you a Tyler Cowen stan? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I read, I read all his books in high school and so forth. Uh, and especially interested in like public choice economics, which mm-hmm. is sort of the economics applied to government. Um, and you know, so I did school in uh, at Carleton in, in Ottawa, Canada. I was on track to have a career in Canadian public policy, but had the opportunity to go to George Mason University um, then work at Mercatus, uh, the research center there, uh, doing tech policy, um, and from there, landed the role I'm in now, which is director of poverty welfare at the, the Scanlon Center, and in, and sort of on the way, uh, shed many of my libertarian uh, dispositions, partly because you know going back to that public choice point, um, you know often public choice gets used as uh, you know this is why government fails. Um, and over time, I, I sort of came to think, well, maybe we should use some of these same concepts to understand how to make government not fail. <laughs> you know what I mean? So a lot of people come
1: to their policy interest area in D.C. through personal experience. Like, you know, um, we have conversations with our guests a lot who have basically personal experience with the policy failing that they're trying to fix. What kind of led you into this I mean, I'm not basically trying to ask you, like, hey, were you ever poor? But, um, like, why why did you get interested, you know, specifically in this, you know, I guess the study of poverty and how we can fix it? How do you get
2: out of bed in the morning? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think some people, especially in the poverty welfare space, they probably, you know, they have a bleeding heart. They really care about, um, you know, poverty per se. Uh, for me, I came at it from a more analytical, you know, libertarians were all very, um, you know, for brain, <laughs> let's put it that way.
0: Um, you then, had your charts,
2: yeah. And and you know, really trying to understand, you know, the transition from classical liberalism to like modern liberalism and why it happened. You know, why, uh, what what changed with the industrial revolution? Because libertarians, you know, we have a great understanding of about why markets are fantastic, why economic growth is fantastic, why innovation is great. Um, but then also, you know, what kind of institutions have to change when technology changes? Um, and so that's where, you know, as I mentioned, I started in tech policy and really like uh, more on the, you know, what's the big innovative, you know, breakthrough technologies. I did, did a lot of work on, um, the revival of supersonic flight, for example. And, you know, one of my convictions was, you know, take, take the China shock. Um, you know, whether or not we should have liberalized trade of China, um, those kind of economic labor market shocks are on some level, inevitable, even if it's just domestic. Um, and you need to have systems in place to help people when they fall, so they don't turn to SSDI or 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 worse, or just exit the labor market altogether. Um, that you don't have communities fall apart, and and really that's part of a broader sort of set of institutions, right? Retraining programs, reemployment supports, um, and so that's really the approach I came at it from. Sort of what you know, what are the conditions? What are the social insurance systems? The market uh, that that complement the market and help the market work better work for actual people actual communities Um, so we can have that vibrant innovative dynamic economy that uh, we often talk about with entrepreneurship and so forth but where if there are disruptions which there inevitably are um that it's uh that that ordinary people come out ahead
0: so presumably you you have issues with the current regime in the united (laughs) states when it comes to poverty welfare how we fill in the gaps when people may stumble uh what are kind of the broad Theoretical problems, the practical problems with the American welfare regime as it currently exists. Ugh, there are too many to count. Other than, I guess, <laughs> we have one, which is the traditional libertarian answer to this. Yeah,
2: I mean, I should have a drink.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Every time the word libertarian comes up, everyone take a drink. Yeah, no, we will die. I, I won't
2: name who that was, but one of one of our mutual friends, and I, I knew I was in the right place when uh, when they uh, said that we should have a um, a, m- a memorial honoring the the victims of libertarianism. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like take take the China shock. Um, uh, we have a program for people disrupted by trade. It's called the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. It's been it's been treated historically as a kind of you know afterthought. Um, we have to pass this trade deal, so the you know members of whatever the AFL CIO lobby to have like a little add on attached, where we're going to if if you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you lost your job due to, to, to imports. Then maybe we'll give you some retraining <laughs> um but you looked at like the china shock which was devastating for for many uh, places in the midwest and south atlantic and um you know ssdi was three times as responsive um like when you go by a sorry what does ssdi mean social security disability social so dis- dis- disability, right. disability insurance more people were more likely three times more likely to you know lose their job and turn to disability than they were to turn to the program that was purported to help people transition from a shock. You know that's because we have a you know th- this is just a microcosm of a bigger problem but you know why does it matter if you lost your job due to trade versus you know uber right like the, the te- technology or the pandemic you know any kind of shock where you lose your job um, or where the demand for certain skills shifts is going to require some form of first a safety net to catch people before they fall and then some way of you know using that safety net as a way to divert people from uh, exiting the labor force altogether, and hopefully putting them on a path to uh, being productive members of society. Ideally, um, you know, through a variety of options, trades, apprenticeships, not just sort of this one track college education system we have. Um, but but you know, in, in the case of TAA, you know, who can prove that they lost their job due to imports? Like. That, you know, there, there are like famous econometricians who, who can't yeah. figure out who lost their job to imports. So, you know, one of my, you know, ideas is to say, well, we have this unemployment insurance system, which is becoming very controversial now is, uh, because it's been topped up to such an extent and people are, um, you know, reluctant to return to work after the pandemic. And what if we had a re-employment insurance system where instead of having a specific program for people disrupted by trade, we used UI as a way of saying, you know, anybody who has lost their job, if they can't find reemployment in a certain amount of time, if they're if they enter you know, the long-term unemployment category, which is 23, 24 weeks, that you're you automatically are able to get access to college programs, to on-the-job training, and really just trying to build a more integrated system. Um, and this is the common theme across a lot of my work is that, and um, you know, my colleagues, Steve us this term, kludocracy. America is this. Is a kludocracy where uh, anytime there's a problem, a new program is passed that just sort of papers over that like a band-aid on that one thing. And across you know 70 years of this kind of stuff, uh, we have a very complex system. I think you know GAO, Government Accountability Office, says that there are uh, I think 47 different employment and training programs in the federal government. Um, you know maybe we need three. I don't know, <laughs> you know? but th- those kind of like more comprehensive reforms. Uh, Are hard to do in in the American setup in in Congress. Um, They're even harder to do because you have lots of special interest groups that are very narrowly focused. Like, you know, any one of those forty-seven programs probably has some benefactor who lobbies for just that specific program. Um, So, you know, in my work, I try to be like the uh, you know to lean against that and to say, you know, how how can we take a more comprehensive look at the system? And if we were to, you know, greenfield this thing and make it work better for everybody, uh, you know, what would it look like? Um, So I, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about my work on like child tax credits and stuff like that. You know, very similar sort of message, um, which is we have a myriad of programs all aimed to help families and children, um, but they've all just accumulated over time. It's not clear how any how effective any single one of them are, and really we need uh, to step back once in a while, maybe every generation, and say how do we really make a Um, make a set of institutions that is coherent and sort of meets the current technological economic moment. One of the things I really like about a lot of your work is that it's not
0: like there is a type of work that you could do in this space that was like, here's what the ideal welfare regime would look like. And I think that's important. And I'd be very curious what country you think gets it best if you were to like, say, that's what we want. But a lot of your work centers on like the realities of how Politically, we can change what we have now piece by piece into something that's better. A, what's the country that gets closest to your ideal vision of a social safety net? And then B, what's the low hanging fruit that we can adjust in the United States to make it as good?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I do I do like to take a a comparative approach in my work. Um, And I think that's something that is a little bit unusual in D.C. politics, where you know if, if it wasn't a pilot program in in Wisconsin in like the early 1990s it didn't happen or something yeah. <laughs> you know um, and I, but there is a lot you can learn from looking cross nationally i wouldn't say that that means that we can like become denmark or anything crazy like that um probably because i'm i'm on some level a historicist like i think that institutions follow a certain you know path dependency that that you know anything you know anything that america becomes will have american characteristics you know you know irrespective of what you're mm-hmm. you're aiming at um you know so you know I, I say rather than get to denmark let's at least like get to canada or get to australia or, or countries that have an anglo sort of economic model right but which um you know on the margin do much better than the us on social mobility on economic opportunity on you know having still some level of a union movement um that is like genuinely pro worker not just pro uh technocrat um You know, so, you know, one of the the areas where I've tried to make an impact is, you know, Canada, Australia, these other Anglo countries have had universal or near universal child benefits for all their their citizens uh, in recognition that, um, you know, raising a family comes with extra expenses. The market does not automatically, you know, pay you more if you have kids. Um, And that if we care about, you know, building a society that is good, not just for profit, but for raising a family. Um, you know, maybe we should have something similar, right? So that on the margin, that's that's something that I think the U.S. can and should do. Um, and especially if we can take a more comprehensive approach. So I, I did some work with uh, with Senator Romney on his Family Security Act, which is a proposal to create a kind of universal child allowance while paying for it by cleaning up many of these older programs, more bureaucratic approaches. Um, you know, so I think anything that can sort of sort of move the U.S. marginally in a direction where we're giving more resources to families of all backgrounds and stripes, and taking the systems we have and, and trying to integrate them so that we don't have like 30 separate offices for this, that, or the other, that if you're um, low income or have lost your job, you're working class, uh, that you know you don't have to like spend down your assets to qualify for Medicaid or something like that. There's a whole series of issues in the US policy domain um, and so, you know, really, uh, you know, my job gets difficult in, in trying to figure out what to prioritize because there's just a lot that's sort of effed up. So there's been a lot of, uh,
1: I don't want to call it division on the right, but I guess like difference of opinion uh, as to what, you know, whether it's uh, welfare or pertaining to like poverty or to, you know, assisting slash incentivizing people to get married and have kids. I think there's, we've seen several different plans from like several different, you know, senators wanting to push some of this stuff different dueling visions Mm. um you know for the future of the party and of the country um i think there's probably an even like wider chasm probably between neoliberals on the left and 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 progressives but what are the are the places and 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 the policies that the right and the left can be working on together uh to to kind of improve this sort of thing
2: um, you know, in, where I worked in the Scannon Center, we're neither left nor right in in that sense. Where, you know, some places are just on one team. We really try to take a transpartisan approach. And by transpartisan, I, I certainly mean something different than bipartisan. Right? So, <laughs> no. you know, my joke on this is like, yeah. you know, bipartisan is when you know John McCain and Joe Lieberman go into a room and and come out with a proposal to like increase, uh, you know. Uh, it, Detention centers or something like that. You want the other side of the
0: horseshoe, basically.
2: Right. Exactly. Whereas transpartisan is when you know Mike Lee and AOC want to like decriminalize something, or you yeah. know. Uh, so you know, with this, you have to be you have to be creative. I find in public policy, um, especially in congressional and national policy, where uh, you know some some organizations and you know all power to them are on a particular team. They're trying to advance a particular mission. Uh, the work I'm trying to do is trying to find areas where People can approach a policy with, from different values, but find something in common with it. So, you know, take the case of the family allowance or the child allowance. You know, Senator Romney um, or someone like Josh Hawley has posted similar things. They, they approach it from a, a way of you know, supporting families. Um, you know, there's good evidence that, um, that family allowances can uh, reduce rates of abortion, um, can uh, actually create more stable marriages. Uh, we've seen many reforms like this in, in Hungary. Uh, meanwhile the left obviously comes at it more from an anti-poverty perspective um, and it's that's all right like they're approaching it from different sides and different values but they're converging on a policy that doesn't split the difference right that is that coherently is both good for po- you know relieving poverty and good for supporting families
0: Yeah, I you use the term pluralism a lot in your work I think and, and that that goes to I think an interesting approach to all of these questions because, I mean, I, I think sometimes a lot of this, like, political realignment stuff on the right can get too cute by half the idea that, you know, <laughs> oh, the right's realigning and we're going to team up with the far left, we're going to do all these great things together, like. Right.
2: Well, that does happen, right? So, like, yeah. you know, I don't work on tech, but yeah. obviously Josh Hawley and, I don't know, um... Uh, yeah, Elizabeth Warren, they probably agree more on, on big tech on certain ways and other things. So that's an, right. that's an example of a transpartisan issue, yeah. even someone I work on.
0: Right. But I, I think that there's, there's probably a distinction. And the way I've been thinking about this is like on the tech issue is that
2: Elizabeth Warren and Josh
0: Hawley... Uh, don't agree on much on tech other than the fact that they don't like Google and that's why antitrust is probably the easiest thing at hand because if you don't like something, shattering it into a million pieces sounds pretty good right. whereas like something like a child tax credit um, or, or a broader welfare regime that that is truly about competing goods not like what people hate the most um it's it's about what what is the the common good even if you want to use a you know drink word um (laughs) what what are what are those goods that you think people are balancing on either side of the equation
2: and and where can they be intention you know right and left oh they're intention all over the place obviously the left right now cares a lot about you know these buzzwords around equity and inclusion and, and diversity um sort of the hr manual kind of kind of terms obviously the right cares a lot about uh liberty and freedom um but also authority um you know family and the ab- ability to, to practice your traditional beliefs whether that's religious or not um you know i come at this as a canadian in part <laughs> uh, you know in part because america always has had this myth- mythos uh, um, as a melting pot right you come to america and you assimilate um and that's you know, in the data that remains true, immigrants who come here assimilate. But when we're talking about assimilation, we're, we mean, you know, do, do they enter the labor market? Do they, you know, get an education? Are, are they, uh, you know, becoming law abiding citizens? That all that part's all true. Um, but uh, in Canada, we take, sometimes it's been referred to as the mosaic as, as opposed to melting pot where, you know, we, we don't try to, we want to have civic integration. We want people with different beliefs and different backgrounds to be part of a common, you know, civic community, but we're not going to you know make the uh, you know the 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 Sikh enclave in greater the Greater Toronto area you know become secular uh, humanists. <laughs> right? They're, <laughs> going to, they're Sikhs. They're gonna they're gonna do their Sikh stuff, um, and that's good, right? And and I think that uh, that concept of pluralism is a little bit missing in American discourse, where you know we know something is wrong when the little sisters of the poor are forced to you know. Buy, you know, IUDs, yeah. stuff like for that for the
0: fourth time. <laughs> right. yeah. And we
2: talk about that in, ter- in terms of like religious liberty. Yeah. But I think liberty is the wrong word for it because it is about liberty, but it's also about pluralism. Because there's a huge difference between, you know, um, having the choice over what you know 401k plan to invest in, right? That's a kind of like consumer choice. There's a huge difference between whether, uh, you know, a Muslim um, with very traditional religious beliefs is, you know, required to uh, go to a uh you know diversity training program that 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 sort of uh runs afoul of everything they believe in or something like that right so like pluralism i think is almost ranks higher than than liberty in some sense because it's it's the liberty that matters the most it's a, it's the liberty over the over the the good the goods that are in dispute right um and i don't think you know even if you think that there is some like way of adjudicating between different goods um in a in a liberal pluralistic society you ultimately have to know, take into account that we're not going to persuade we're not going to convince everybody we're not going to have like one big consensus we're never going to be you know mao's china or or as homogenous as you know sweden or something like that um and so you have to take pluralism really seriously and that doesn't mean that you know uh that if you are a you know a center-left technocrat or something like that that and you're designing a policy um that you know accommodates religious people with. Uh, with conscious uh, concerns or something like that. Um, that doesn't mean that you're like endorsing those views. You might even, you know, think that, you know, contraception or something like that is like super important. Um, but you should do it anyway. You should try to accommodate their views anyway because you never know when you're going to be on the other side of the table. And ultimately, we have to all live together. Um, and to the extent that American culture and life right now is incredibly divided, um, they're divided over not, you know, the minimum wage or something like that. They're divided over these deep issues of what what do you consider the good life? Um, and there's only two ways to answer that issue, either pluralism or, you know, one team has to win and dominate the others. And I don't think anyone wants that latter outcome. Yeah. So
0: let's try to find some common ground then. Um, there's been a giant debate in 2021 over the child tax credit. You were obviously at the center of it with the policy that I, I think it'd be not inaccurate to say that you guys did with senator romney like scan and had a day zero kind of rollout on all of it um first of all what is the child tax credit um <laughs> we have a lot of single unmarried people uh childless people who listen to the podcast who also may not actually know much about policy because no one in washington really knows that much about policy what is the child tax credit why is it important and what are the different reforms on the table right now uh for improving it
2: yeah so child tax credit um it goes back to the contract for america actually it was uh, part of um i think introduced in 1997 uh really championed by ralph reed and but even before then um you know sort of part of this social conservative element of the conservative coalition to say if you're going to you know cut the capital gains rate we should do something for families on the side right <laughs> um and so that's that's really its origin that's why it has had such transpartisan support for for so long so it's been it's a uh a refund on your taxes based on how many kids you have so you know the most recent uh major reform was during the tax cuts and jobs act under, under trump they increased it to two thousand dollars per kid so if you owed a lot in taxes every kid meant two thousand dollars off that um, and then there's a part of it that's refundable which means even if you don't owe taxes you still get some now what other countries do uh, in fact every other country but the u.s is they have very similar programs um, but they're Rather than treat them as a tax credit, they are just a benefit. So, if you have kids, they're not neither deserving or undeserving. Um, they are just a a dependent of life. If you have kids, you get a certain amount. Um, you can do it monthly. I think you know in the Netherlands they do it quarterly. Uh, there's variation on, on a theme, but the idea is pretty straightforward. Um, and so, uh, you know, most recently, as part of the American Rescue Plan, the Biden administration. Uh, made the child tax credit fully refundable, which means, uh, you know, beginning uh, in July, um, families across America will be getting $3,600 per child um, under six and $3,000 per child uh, six to 17. Um, the Romney proposal was to, w- was, you know, I think this is why it caught people off guard, was even more generous. It was to do $4,200 for kids under six and $3,000 for, for older kids and um, and do it to do it through the social security administration to move it out of the tax code where the tax code has become uh kind of overused for all kinds of social policy and to put it in a proper context as a like actual social insurance program um and to do it well like cleaning up a, a variety of uh more bureaucratic family support systems so like TANF TANF is um is our traditional welfare system
0: that's temporary assistance for needy families right yeah, that's correct. what that stands for
2: um and you know TANF uh it's TANF, uh, you know, practically speaking, the grants are grants to states and it's mostly grants to you know, New York and California. So uh, really, it's the program has become over the years because it's shrunk over time, a kind of uh, you know, federal grant in kind to to New York and California. So getting rid of it isn't the worst thing. But it also, you know, it, it's also sort of the, a perfect example of, a, of how bureaucracy can trap people into poverty. Uh, you know, often people turn to those programs because they just had a kid and they're not like poor, they're just broke. Right, and there's a huge difference on a sociological level between those two things. But if you get sucked into a poverty bureaucracy, you're given all these other benefits like housing and childcare uh, that have really steep benefit cliffs. You'll become mired in that, and then you will socialize into a different kind of poverty. Um, so one of the you know elements of a child allowance is just treating people with equal respect, right? Um, I've called it sort of the bourgeois dignity of a child allowance to say yeah. like we're going to treat everyone just as if they're middle class. Yeah.
0: So let's find some common ground what is the child tax credit and what are the proposals on the table right now to reform it it's it's been in the news all throughout 2021 explain yourself (laughs) (laughs) right
2: so i mean the child tax credit it goes back to 1997 um it, it was part of the contract for america um and that and that origin is one of the reasons why it's always had robust republican support ralph reed was one of the champions of it um uh really the kind of social conservative wing of tax reform um and really the idea is to give parents with back when social conservatives weren't just satisfied with like capital gains tax
0: cuts as like right i
2: mean all. they still i mean really they're only just starting to you know assert themselves even that was kind of um uh you know secondary i, I have a whole other thing i could talk about on this <laughs> we're, where
1: we're we're one supreme court justice <laughs> away from overturning v. Okay, <laughs> right. just one more yeah. yeah. now
2: if we yeah the tenth will do it yeah um <laughs> Yeah, the, I mean, actually, so a funny story behind that. Uh, I wrote this article on um, Hungary's pro-family policies called uh, Born in Hungary for National Review. Um, and ever since Is that the, like a pun on Born in the USA? Uh, I did not write the title, so okay. I, don't, I do not know. But um, uh, ever since then, I've been invited to every single Hungarian embassy event, <laughs> as you can imagine.
0: Oh, yeah. You have a really good story about this. Don't name names of who you're talking about. I won't, you name tell story? Yeah, I won't name
2: names. Yeah, I won't name names. But, um, well, it was... At this event uh, they had the uh hungarian family minister speaking about all their pro-family policies and they had a, a slate of people um some from the trump administration you know just the who's who uh I, I mean i can name at least one name because all right it's, it's go, totally for it. go for it <laughs> yeah, name check g- well it, i mean gorka i mean he is basically hungarian right um yeah he gave this like a Pretty pretty based speech, if I do say so myself, on like the, how family is the foundation for civilization and stuff like that. Um, and then afterward, there was a panel where um, you know a leader of the um, uh, social conservatism in America, the evangelical conservatism, um, said his you know his, his he was agape, You know his jaw had hit the floor, just sort of astounded by all the pro-family policies that Hungary is implementing and then he proceeded to say well you know here in america we take a small government approach <laughs> right? so we can't like, have nice
0: things here
1: right, <laughs> right. so that's t- socialism nice things are socialist yeah
2: so it so sort sh- showed me to what extent that part of the coalition had subordinated itself to um kind of pro-business interests um and i think that's starting to change you know partly because you know many of those pro-business interests are now democrats <laughs> yeah <laughs> um uh, but yeah, the child tax credit, is a it's a tax refund for your kids. And over time, it's, uh, it's grown. And most recently, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act made it $2,000 per kid. So if you have a lot of taxes and you have a lot of kids, you get fewer taxes. Uh, but there's also a part that's refundable, which means that even if you don't owe taxes at all, you get it just the same. Um, and most recently, it was expanded as part of uh, the Biden administration's rescue package, um, really trying to make this a wedge issue, unfortunately, but, um, I think it's also an issue that a lot, a lot of conservatives can find common ground on, um, by making it fully refundable, which is to say that everyone with kids gets the same amount. Um, we're going to treat it the way we treat it in other countries, including Canada and, and, uh, most of Europe where, um, rather than thinking of it as a tax cut, we're going to think of it as an actual benefit for having kids. Um, uh, paid monthly, right? And uh, what surprised a lot of folks back in February was when Senator Romney rolled out his own proposal, which was even bigger than the Romney <laughs> proposal or than the uh, Biden proposal and which, uh, you know, would do it through Social Security Administration rather than the IRS because the IRS is already overloaded of tons of other stuff. Um, and the Social Security Administration is where you would actually do this because this really is a kind of Social Security for kids. Um, and with a myriad of other reforms, like there were going to, uh, the Romney proposal would pay for it in its entirety by abolishing for, you know, the state and local tax deduction, Democrats hate that, Um, getting rid of TANF, the temporary assistance for Needy families block grant, which is really really a, you know, a shell of its former self, like our our social service programs are are, um, really kind of in ruin and and people who enter through those programs often end up being trapped in poverty through the the bureaucracies. Um, But also like getting rid of marriage penalties and the the EITC and other other tax provisions. Uh, you know, I think it was really actually kind of, uh, it sparked a really healthy discussion, let's put it that way. And I think there are um, still lots of conservatives trying to figure out how they think about this stuff, right? Um, You know, is money for nothing, you know, obviously there's been lots of uh, um, interest in stimulus checks and stuff like that, but uh, an ongoing commitment to provide every family in America, every citizen family in America, with uh, income support to help raise their kids and raise the next generation. And so, you know, even people who sort of disagree around the edges, I think it really has tried to, it really has advanced the conversation where we're not sort of trapped in the 90s anymore and thinking just in terms of like welfare reform.
1: I think most of the conversation has been great and very productive. And I think I've seen, you know, a lot of conservatives come the right way, I believe, on this issue, you know, supporting the family and um, particularly in middle, in the middle and lower class. But there certainly was... uh, A bit of a meltdown on small government conservative Twitter Uh, you know there were there were plenty of people who shall remain nameless who said this is the beginning of our slide into socialism like Venezuela and there are people who said (laughs) you know this will we be eating rats Sam (laughs) yeah like this people who said like this is the beginning of a religious like theocracy like Iran like we we are on our way there Uh Um, Help us dispel just the ludicrous assumptions about this program. Why is it important? You know that mm-hmm. we that we support people with children, uh, and why really should we claim it as a conservative issue?
2: Uh, well, yeah, like, let me deal with this in in sequence. Um, you know, it is funny. Uh, you know, Poland with their Law and Justice Party uh, yeah. implemented a very uh, robust child allowance, and um, you know, cut you know, the 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 world bank you know put a report saying wow poland you made tons of progress on child poverty like your child poverty rate has been slashed in half and and because but because it's a conservative government that's doing it um you know you 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 can find many articles saying this is like creeping you know handmaid's tale or something like that democracies (laughs) when liberals
0: get what they want when liberals don't get what they want that's fascism Um, yeah
2: yeah so you know i i have a different uh, I've, been, I've written a lot of things about sort of how to think about big government. And I think there's the fiscal side where are we spending money? Um, you know, what is government's footprint as a percentage of GDP? And that can tell you something. But, you know, if unless you're going to go full for, for like Grover Norquist and, 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 you know, make your, your end goal sort of, you know, eighteenth, nineteenth century America, right? Like that's never gonna happen. Um, then we have to take a more qualitative approach to what big government is. And, you know, the reason Venezuela has slid into catastrophe is not because they had like, you know, a robust family allowance. It's, <laughs> it's because they like destroyed markets and they had price controls and they nationalized industry. And that's really the kind of big government that matters, right? Um so in this in the case of a child benefit, um, you know, there's lots of evidence that reduces uh, rates of abortion. Guttmacher has a survey that shows 28% of women who have had an abortion um, cites financial insecurity as their primary, primary motivation. Um, it, it diverts low-income people from turning to more bureaucratic poverty programs in which they can become trapped. Um, you know, TANF, the poverty program that, that uh, our, our main sort of welfare program, Um, Is for a lot of parents a kind of maternity leave, of last resort, and you don't Mm -hmm. want people turning to those things um, for that reason. And then, thirdly, it it offers going back to this this discussion we were having around pluralism. It sort of leaves paternalism to the parents, right? It's we're not going to try to dictate the good life on what uh, you know whether you should be a two earner family or single earner family of a stay at home mom. Um, We want to remain neutral to those things because they are very precious life decisions, and you know, it's particularly become particularly relevant in the context of this emerging childcare debate, where there's a question. You know, um, you know, do we want to have an enormous universal national daycare program, um, in which uh, you know is basically designed from bottom up for the the, du- the dual earner, college educated, professional class family uh, that lives in big urban areas, um, or do we want to put choice back in the hands of parents so they can use cash, something that's Totally fungible, to you know, have daycare out of their church basement, right? To s- support the stay-at-home mom, to su- you know, to compensate a relative, um, especially across rural America, you know, they they don't have the population density to support like a big formal early childhood education center. <laughs> um, but Biden's trying to change that. They're they're pumping literally billions of dollars. The Childcare Stabilization Fund on its own is I think nearly thirty billion dollars, just going to formal daycare centers. Um, and, you know, when we do have that, you know, when we do have a subsidized option for every parent in America to send their kid to um, be cared for by uh, well-credentialed uh, strangers, you know, there's there's benefits to that, but there's also costs, right? And I think, um, yeah, you know, for me, the costs are both on the, you know, on the actual policy side. Like, do we need more credentialing, right? We're, we're in Washington, D.C. Um, a few years ago, Washington, D.C. passed a law requiring that their daycare workers have a two-year associate's degree, right? Like, <laughs> we've been, you know, evolving uh, on this earth for 300,000 years as homo sapiens. Like, I'm pretty sure we know how to raise kids without having, you know, a college education. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, uh, the other issue is you need to know critical race theory
0: in order to <laughs> raise well, a child and you must in be America. able
1: to teach it to uh, to children basically. right but this is
2: this is this, the other side which is less policy and more um uh, more politics and culture which is you know when you do have something like a universal daycare program there will inevitably be fights over who sets the standards what are what kind of curricula are we teaching because this isn't just daycare anymore it's not early child education right <laughs> and, yeah. and what does that actually mean in practice like yes sir i'm sure there is a lot of merit to you know reading to your kids and giving them stimulation that's that's uh, more valuable than what screens or something like that but reading what right yeah how to be anti-racist <laughs> baby right?
0: or like how to be an anti-racist baby that's right yeah exactly and, and
2: you know um I, I i think it's fine for you know a very woke family to send their kids to that system right if they want to just just like i think it's fine for a catholic family to send their kids to catholic school um but we should recognize that just because one family is secular, that they're, they're no less, you know, sectarian, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if we had a degree of social trust like they would have in other countries, you know, maybe you can do something like that. But you can't do that in America. We have a very diverse society. You have to respect that diversity. We have, you know, Mormons in Utah and the Amish in Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> like there's lots of var- variation, and you know, uh, we can't just appro- approach it as a purely technocratic issue, which is how. A lot of this stuff gets discussed. It gets dis- discussed in terms of, you know, what are female labor force participation rates? How do we, you know, boost GDP? Um, and it's not that I'm against boosting GDP. I just think you have to understand how many of these programs are incredibly value laden in, in, in a way that is ve- very alienating to many religious conservatives. So to ask a, uh, just an important,
1: I think, clarifying question about the child allowance in particular, uh, and you you know you probably have to speak to to romney's plan in particular because that's the one that you and this canon ostensibly sensibly were you know involved in crafting but is the child allowance intended to support people who already have children like it's it's kind of meant as a part of this rescue package right because of coronavirus or is it something that is also meant to support you know people in the future who are, who are maybe think like is it meant yeah. as an incentive yeah or just a support measure for right now
2: well both right so um you know there's the political dimension to this right so you know one of the reasons i put my attention behind this is because in canada in the early 2000s there was um we had a populist movement of our own right? we were talking before uh, we hit record about you know western canada mm-hmm. um and there was a movement to, uh, that their motto was sort of the west wants in it was yeah. a very populist um, because uh, the know, golden days yeah. of Western Canada, <laughs> very populous sort of.
0: Imagine taking any tea of these par- seriously. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's it has a lot of lessons for American conservatives because it kind of did prefigure many of the things behind the Tea Party and then later behind Trump. Yep. Um And you know they were re- really reacting to. Uh, what we call like the Laurentian elite, people mm-hmm. who went to school on near, you know, the U of T or McGill schools near the St. Lawrence River are called Laurentian elites, just like we have in America, sort of elite uh, corridor. Yeah, or exactly. Or whatever, yeah. Exactly. Um uh and at the time the that's that populist movement split the party, right? The Conservative Party, uh sort of disintegrated. And uh in sort of the same way that we're seeing now uh in the on the American right, although uh, because of the political system parties don't break up that easy um but you know uh stephen harper in 2006 one election campaigning on an agenda of trying to rebuild the party around a common policy agenda right um and one of the things that they passed was this universal child allowance in 2006 and it's like here's a conservative government doing something that is you know objectively pro-poor like it's helping poor families but it's also helping working-class families it's helping middle-class families it's because it's universal and it's sort of extolling this Broader message of we're doing this qua family, you know, we're, you know everyone gets it qua being kids and having um, you know progeny, um, and it really helped bring the party together. It brought together the populists um, because you know checks got me some checks. <laughs> yeah, uh, it brought together the libertarians because they didn't want bureaucracy, and at the time the uh, Liberal Party in Canada was proposing a national daycare program, um, and it brought together the social conservatives because it was something that was objectively pro-family. Now, um, in the U.S. context, you know I think a lot of the debate is sort of anchored to the 1990s and the welfare reform debate, um, and that was a very particular issue, right? There was we had an old welfare program called AFDC uh, that came out of the mother's pension program. Mother's pensions were for um, you know widows re- for whose uh, hus- husbands didn't return from war. They had kids. It was at a time when women weren't expected to work, um, so as such, the program didn't, you know, wasn't structured to encourage work. (laughs) so we sort of, it was, it was created dependency by design, right? Um, because if you earned a dollar on that program, you would lose a dollar in benefits. Um, and so we've, we've kind of learned the the wrong lesson from that where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the fact that there was a welfare program per se that was trapping people out of work. It was the fact that if they worked, they lost their benefits, right? And, And a universal program doesn't have those problems. Um and especially one in which it, by dint of being universal, we kind of treat everyone as if they're sort of have the aspirations and the potential to be part of this big bourgeois middle class. Um, and, and I think it's really important going back to the childcare issue. Uh, you know, ever since the Great Society, there has been this attitude on the left of, you know, trying to attach spending programs to particular interest groups. Right, whether it's sort of the liberal legal network and you know, much of the civil rights stuff is is really downstream of um, uh, you know public interest law firms and legal activism, but then also in the social policy dimension, uh, you know if you can pass a big childcare bill that gives a ton of money to you know what the one of two you know uh, nationally accredited credentialing agencies, mm-hmm. then then you build a constituency, yeah. right, and um, and that makes those things really sticky. And it also means that they're uh, they're not really trying to build a platform, a more universal kind of structure. They're trying to really benefit parochial interest groups. Um, and that's something we really have to push, push back against. And also, you know, be really careful when we're talking about big government, what we really mean. Do we care about Social Security and Medicare? Is that, you know, obviously there's problems in Medicare with cost. Um, but you often hear like keep your government hands off my Medicare. Like, <laughs> what is that? What is that getting at? It's getting at this idea that there's a huge difference between a, a relatively efficient retirement system versus you know imagine if we went into Social Security and said um, no, you're not going to get your your. Uh, uh, regular uh, Social Security income. Instead, we're going to give you a voucher for your nursing home and, <laughs> and here's an EBT card and you can only buy you know, the nicest uh, fresh green groceries. <laughs> you know, people would revolt, right? Because you know, those might end up benefiting particular interest groups, but um, a, a, univer- a relatively universal program like Social Security can't be tampered with in that way.
0: So so talk to me about universality a little bit. Uh, I've been very influenced by a particular heuristic that Matt Brunig has used a lot, which is like trapezoid welfare programs. Um, uh, You know, people have this kind of, I think, instinctual justice-oriented framework that, oh rich people shouldn't be getting right. a given benefit. I mean, this was literally a major theme uh, in Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders in the 2016 presidential primary. Uh, Hillary Clinton was running on a trapezoid-style benefit when it came to free college because he said, I don't want Donald Trump's kids getting free college. What's the, first of all, what's the distinction between universal and a non-universal program? And B, why why do people get so hung up about it? And why shouldn't they?
2: Yeah, it's a case where... Um... Sort of the horseshoe theory in the bad sense rears its head, where you have folks on the left who really only care about targeting things on, um, on the poor because they take a a uh, you know more egalitarian framework. They're trying to basically redistribute, and then you have folks on the right who will say, you know, you know, we're fiscal conservatives. We don't want to spend. We don't want to waste money on people who don't need it. So, you know, we want to make sure that you know, programs like Medicaid or whatever are for the truly needy, right? Um, and, you know, I think what implicit in that model is a kind of resignation to having a very bifurcated labor market and bifurcated society. Um, you know, it, it's just it's very distinct from the kind of FDR New Deal kind of vision where we're going to create like these broad based programs that, that potentially benefit everybody, because at the time, um, you know, especially with the headwinds um, or the tailwinds from, um, you know, the investments in uh, and military equipment and manufacturing uh, during World War II, you know, we came out of that with a ro- very robust middle class, right? And so you're trying to build sort of bedrock uh, social insurance systems for that middle class, versus you know post '70s style Great Society programs where um, where there is a very bifurcated system where you have upper class and an underclass, and we're just going to use transfer programs to uh, you know, paper over the underclass. We're not going to try to, you know, restore a robust middle. Um, and moreover, because people in the underclass don't really know what's good for them. We're going to make sure that, that we have, you know, people with good credentials and, you know, master's degrees in education policy or whatever to, to, to really social engineer. Right. Um, I think those are two very different visions of the America that we want. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I, you know, I think people should. I think conservatives need to make peace with a, a version of the New Deal, based on this notion of having a robust middle, right, um, and really try to go to war and, and draw clear distinctions between that vision and the kind of more uh, technocratic great society vision, where we're going to, you know, give uh, uh, credentialed special interest groups tons of handouts and and in kind benefits um, to basically entrenched this very bifurcated society that we have and it's only becoming more bifurcated
0: and it causes a political dysfunction too right i mean right the universal this sor- program is it. a lot
2: harder to yeah. know, abolish it's a source of this kleptocracy that i mentioned right
0: well and here's the thing
1: is that i mean this this kind of praise of you know whether it be fdr or the new deal is like i mean it's like a dirty word in conservatism right. you know like i've I was reading this, uh, you know, fellow Canadian, uh, Conrad Black, his biography of uh, of FDR it took me like a month and two days to finish because it's, you know, very long. And so a chunky book. Yeah. So people, <laughs> people are always asking me like what I'm reading. I normally get through a book a week and I was taking like a really long time on this one. And so I talked about it a lot and almost universally on the right, the response was, "Ugh." Like it doesn't even matter if 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 you know the people were ideologically aligned, uh, you know, with what we're doing at American Moment. Like generally, the the, right. the response from the right has been to shun that, to shun the New Deal, to to shun FDR. Um, what would you say is is you know, like the replacement for this like vocabulary about free markets is the solution to everything and pulling everyone up by their bootstraps. Yeah
2: yeah so I mean there's there's a overhang an institutional overhang in uh, American conservatism um, you know up whether it was Eisenhower or Nixon you know up up until Reagan, people had broadly made peace of that, <laughs> that New Deal vision right and I think there was an effort to really try to reverse it and um, you know this goes back to my initial comments but sort of the memorial the victims of to the victims of the right? like, Yeah, you know there there's there a there's real there you have to really try to understand what do people want what do conservatives like rank and file conservatives want do they care about you know government as a percentage gdp per se you know they want they want taxes that are low fair and simple right they don't they want government out, out of their life um on a sort of phenomenological level like do they have to file quarterly taxes and stuff like that and how do you do that without you know having some understanding of the machinery of government. You need to actually understand how it works. You can't be anti-government per se. Uh, You know, I think this goes to um, a point Michael Lind has made repeatedly, which is, uh, you know, take something like the the Trump administration, um, setting aside the administration itself, you know, it it was less effective than it could have been because it was more a counterculture than a counter-establishment, right? Mm. Um, And so you need to understand how that establishment works and have you know the folks that you're recruiting, and so forth, be part of that establishment uh, to actually affect change. And part of that is also you know understanding that government is just a tool, and it be, can be used for good and ill, right? Um, so you know I think on some level pluralism works better through that more more broad based vision, whether you want to connect it to FDR or not. And uh, it's very clear whether it's big tech or or, um, or or trade or these other issues that the conservative base. Isn't you know a Charles Koch libertarian, and uh, and but nor are they a Elizabeth Warren social democrat, right? They're something different. And um, what that vision really was, you know, what what you know my sense is, is that it is more reflective of a kind of FDR style of uh, conservatism, actually, which is pro worker, pro working class, um, not pro you know great society where it's going to redistribute the gains and and right. let you stagnate but trying to build a society that has this big middle right This this big robust bourgeois that can resist the kind of overclass
0: our friend orin cass uh loves to you know when people ask him oh do you want government to be bigger or smaller and he's just like put aside that question i want it to be differently shaped exactly um yeah. but i i guess on net where do you stand do, do you think that and and i think you brought up an interesting way of, of maybe distinguishing even the bigger or smaller question because how people feel how big the government is is a related but but distinct question from how big it actually is so let's use the example of how much money it spends should the federal government in the united states be spending more money or less on net okay. I, I
2: think it's like a, a ill-phrased question right like I'm, it, <laughs> yeah be a better podcaster sir. <laughs> no i mean i mean these are questions that people have but it's it's not like there's a fact of the matter. It's, you know that that's a really a fiscal policy question. Like, are we in a recession? Do we want to have a bigger deficit? Yada, yada, yada. You know, I do think that governments have to pay for their bills at some point. Um, that all that, that's all very true. The, you know the question is are we paying for our bills at a high level or a low level? You know, I think, um, again, America will never be Denmark. We're not about to have, you know, a 20% value-added tax. <laughs> uh, so you have to sort of work within those constraints, work within part of the American history and, and the American sort of constitution in the in the personality sense, the, the, the constitution of Americans. And so every anything you're going to design is going to have, you know, American characteristics. But what I really think we need to do is not just set aside the how big question uh, and also not even the, you know, how differently designed or differently allocated question. But but really think about this in terms of like nation building per se, right? You know, why people like Lincoln or, or or FDR is because they were ultimately a kind of nation builder, right, there was a epic moment of transition and they had to construct new institutions, right? And not only new, new institutions, but like clean out the rot that was already there um, and make things work just better, right? And, I'm and, gonna start using
0: that as a phrase, by the way. Like, I'm pro nation building, but for us, <laughs> right? Like, not, I mean, that's like a classic Barack Obamaism, right? Like, we need to do nation building at home. Like, and I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just it's it's a line that people have used before.
2: Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, there's nation building when you topple a government and then like you have to pick up the pieces. That 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 doesn't end up working very well. But I'm talking more in the sense of, you know, we have many institutions uh, that were designed in the post-war period. They're clearly running on fumes and it's affected academia it's affected you know we had I've been a little bit involved in the debate around um, R&D funding and, and our science agencies which have become very sclerotic and so up and down the board like it's clear that American institutions are not really firing in all cylinders um, and that's not a question of pouring more money at the problem it's also not a question of just pure austerity it's a question of how do we actually get these institutions to be high functioning right mm-hmm. I one could
0: potentially accuse you of sort of being more technocratic in your affect. You know, you're you're interested in moving the dials of policy in potentially a slightly bloodless way. But I'm curious <laughs> what... <laughs> Man, that's... Feel free, feel free to refute that. if He's, he's like. calling Kettle Blood. He, yeah, he's, he's going to put that in his Twitter bio. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's going to be the thing. Yeah, b- a bloodless technocrat. There you go. <laughs> but I guess I'm curious, uh, 10,000 foot view, what to you are the threats, the existential threats facing the United
2: States in the next 20 to 30 years? Oh, 20, 30 years? I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, that's a lot. There are so many. <laughs> well, I mean, there's just a lot of technology that's that's going to be very different. Um, you know, I think there, the next century will be defined on some level by, uh, you know, this actually kind of ancient tension between, um, you know, liberty and, and public order, right? We, you, you saw this already with the pandemic, right? Like, um. You know, Taiwan did a much better job on some levels managing the pandemic because even though they're they're a democracy, but, um, you know, they had quarantines in place to, you know, put people uh, against their will, you know, behind bars, you know, in a hotel room or whatever for 14 days or whatever. Like America is not ever going to, that's never going to fly in America. But at the same time, you also have, you know, information technology that's making, that's, that's exposing the corruption across all kinds of institutions from, government to corporate America to, you know, you know, the inner marriage details of Bill Gates and stuff like that. And that anytime, you know, someone gets shot in the street, the the video is going to go viral. Um, and those, that creates a, you know, what Martin Gurry has called the revolt of the public, right? Whether it, you know, it started with, you know, Tunisia and the Arab Spring, um, moving up to Brexit and Trump on some level. Uh, but then also riots in Paris and stuff like that. And I think all this stuff will only continue to escalate and accelerate until um, institutions of government and, and corporate America and, and other institutions um, reset around those new, new realities, right? Like, I think you're seeing this already with, with the kind of politicians that are rising in America right now. It's, th- it's people like, you know, Ron DeSantis or AOC or Donald Trump, folks who uh, have a kind of authenticity about them um, and I think that's partly a function of being in a more digital age. Right. And, you know, if there is like some breakthrough in AI or something like that and, and shit just hits the fan <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, our institutions just sort of, the you know, their gears seize up. Right. Um, it, it's going to get rough and it's, you know, it's going to require, um, uh, people to be ready to, um. You know, anticipate and and opportunistically like take the that big transition in a way that's more healthy and productive, um, but you know that's the thing I'm most worried about. It's it's sort of that tension between public order and 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 having institutions like we need institutions right i know america has a very sort of protestant ethic undergirding it and we don't like (laughs) institutions we don't we don't like being mediated but ultimately some kind of mediation but it has to be mediate mediation that everyone buys into right and if you're being mediated by literally the media and you don't trust anything they say um you know maybe that gives rise to new new media like we're seeing happen. Um, I think that's gonna happen across a variety of different domains, and the powers that be that the incumbents that are losing out are going to be crying the whole way. Um, But what comes out the other end will look very different, but will ultimately be more congruent with where the public is at.
1: You heard it here first, folks. Sam Hammond says it's gonna get worse, and uh, (laughs) you should build your cabin in the woods and buy some ammunition. Um, So as the uh, resident, I guess, diet Canadian. That's the, that's the, that's the lexicon that you You hail from Minnesota.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) As a resident (laughs) Canada fan, diet Canadian, amateur historian, whatever. Um, it's, I'm going to get one more Canada question in. Okay. Uh, you've previously, you know, worked for the government of Canada, or at least that's what my notes tell me. Um, (laughs) what do you think that the U S can learn from Canada on these issues? And like, really actually learn because a a lot of americans i mean even in dc in particular like to make fun of canada and i mean i do too on occasion um it's it's a pretty easy place to make fun of (laughs) uh but what what like practically and actually can american policymakers here in dc you know young people who are maybe in their first or second job on the hill what can they learn from the way uh that canada has done business over the last couple of decades
2: yeah I mean there's many things um I've, I've already mentioned the kind of different approach to multiculturalism where we we have an actual sort of actual multiculturalism right not not this kind of monoculturalism yeah
1: right. I mean I disagree with that take so like <laughs> let's move on to the next one after that.
2: yeah I, mean, I think that is really important though um and it's you know in the in the Canadian civil service that kind of um you know liberal neutrality or pluralism is really strong right it's it's you know um uh, until relatively recently if you were a senior official in government you couldn't even belong to a political party right um and that's sort of a trade off with having an administrative state right like uh, so canada shows that like if you want to have a high functioning high trust government some of those norms have to really be strong and in place so that's one thing um you know, take the take immigration i think you know i can't speak too much about immigration policy cuz it's not my my lane but um you know, Canada really proves that uh, a point space system, one that's rooted in sort of national interest and national economic interest, um, can support high rates of immigration. That's good for the good for the country, good for the economy, but also has lots of popular buy-in. In part because, in part because we have a sense that there's like we control it, right? There's a huge difference between having a million people come in every year. Um, who are unaccounted for, and you're not really sure what's going on, versus like a, yeah. a, a controlled flow. Yeah, I mean, you they, have it a
1: lot easier because you don't have
0: like a porous southern border, right? I mean, yeah. theoretically, you could like. That's part of it, but that's yeah. that's American uh, celebrities keep threatening to go to Canada. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I think that's that's a little bit overrated. It's it's um you know obviously in the U.S. most of undocumented immigrations visa overstays, right? It's it's not people waltzing across the border. Um, it's really, but it comes down to you know having a immigration system that you know, A has you know a ton of control, a ton of you know very strong employment verification and stuff like that. Um, and, but B is sort of understood to be in the national, for the national interest, right? Um, uh, and really, you know, we Canada draws from like the world's middle classes. Like we have like um, you know different every every other every other country's middle class has a, has a enclave in Canada, and and that has helped create that kind of bourgeois middle. So I think at some level like actually a, a more liberal immigration policy with the right um, guidelines and the right things it's selecting for could actually help, uh, you know, fill in the, the hollowed out parts of America like the, that have become uh, very uh, barbell shaped. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that Canada also shows the importance of, of regionalism. Um, you know, na- our politics are much less national. Than they are in the United States, partly because we're very federalized. Like provinces, kind of run everything, um, uh, and I think that would be much healthier for America to have some more genuine sort of more genuine federalism. And it, it, and you know, part of that is is understanding what what are the conditions for federalism to work well. Um, you know, in the case of Canada, we have very robust um, revenue sharing between the provinces, so. Um, so provinces are actually able to fund the programs that they're tasked with funding, right? Uh, and in America, there are over like a hundred federal grant programs, um, and they're all, for the most part, very highly skewed towards blue states that have the most spending power, right? And so you run into the situation where, oh, you know, we want, you know, maybe you're a classic or sort a of David French kind of, kind of conservative, and you just want like you think state rights is the answer to everything, and uh, we should just push you know healthcare or whatever back to the states. Well you're going to run into problems because Mississippi has double the poverty rate as Massachusetts, right? And actually, Mississippi and Massachusetts have very similar tax uh, structures. They both have a 5% top marginal income tax. They both have a 5% sales tax. But Mississippi raises half the revenue per capita as Massachusetts because they're just much poorer, right? Um, So federalism is a big piece. I think, you know, the right could do a better job of trying to articulate what an agenda would look like around not, not using federalism as sort of like a, as a, uh, a formulae response to something to say, well, let's just leave it to the states, but to say, how do we actually structure the, pro- like the federal setup to make it possible for states to actually have a bigger role in structuring policy? Um, and then, uh, you know, not being, uh, you know, taking efficiency is efficiency is not the right word, but like, you know, Americans are very ideological, <laughs> whether you're left or right. Um, and, you know we could all use a, a healthy dose of just raw pragmatism um, you know part of this goes to you know the american revolution having a very idealistic utopian uh, sort of founding uh, canada obviously doesn't have that we still uh, have plenty of royalists <laughs> and i know you that you got the leftovers from the revolution <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i'm a loyalist myself so you know uh, god save the queen but uh you know there's there's not really there's never really been a genuine conservatism in america on, on that level on that kind of british style tory uh, toryism and you know this goes to uh, unease about big government like canada has this very um famous tradition of red toryism uh, sort of big government conservatism that's all missing in america because we tend to in america link conservatism very closely to the founding which is which is great but um and obviously, like I said before, everything has American characteristics that will that will be coming uh, in the future. But um, but to be a little bit more pragmatic about what that actually entails, right? Like if we're going to be pro-FDR, pro-Lincoln, at least on some margins, it's going to have to require um, you know understanding that uh, uh, you know we can't just leave everything to the courts. Basically, <laughs> we have we can't we can't you know get to uh get back to 1776 uh at least not like that um and we really have to work with the cards we're dealt right and um and that's always been much more prominent in, in canadian thinking sam this has been very thoughtful where can people learn more about the stuff
0: that you're doing in a scan and learn more about you learn more about the ideas you're talking about
2: uh org, and I'm ham and cheese on Twitter. Ham and cheese. Is there a backstory <laughs> to that? Uh, just an old internet handle. I yeah. joined Twitter in two thousand seven. Yeah. Early, early uh, Damn. I could have got better better handle. Okay, real for real. <laughs> this is our last question.
1: Do you ever get people that DM you asking to buy your handle, and if so, how much have you been offered?
2: Never in my life. No. Really,
1: no one has ever offered to buy. Are a you are making offer? an offer right now? Are you like twenty bucks? <laughs> no, no deal. <laughs> okay. well, thanks for coming That's on the that, podcast.
0: That's sweet. Think tank money is enough. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This week, we wanted to highlight on AmCannon a really cool piece by a friend of the podcast, Julius Krein. Actually, I don't know Julius personally, but American Affairs is definitely a friend of the podcast. So, acquaintance
1: of the podcast. Acquaintance of the
0: podcast. (laughs) Um, uh, It's called, Can Conservatism Be More Than a Grudge? Um, And in it, he, uh, I think he wrote it for, like, the publication of the Harvard Kennedy School. And in it, he talks about uh, basically something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is what the status quo of sort of power balance is in american life right now which is that essentially the republican party over the last 20 to 30 years has been a i think he uses the term rent-a-party where its quote-unquote principles usually economic libertarian libertarianism are utilized by various economic interests in order to further their pure bottom line corporate gains when uh, the entire ethos underlying the party an ethos that would theoretically support social conservatism thriving society human flourishing are left by the wayside. I think it's a fantastic piece, and it goes to a lot of what we talked about just now in the podcast with Sam, which is the idea that we, we have to have an actual positive agenda if we're going to govern as conservatives, as even social conservatives. Uh, and that relates to all sorts of things, including poverty and welfare. It relates to things like industrial policy um, and, and, and what the shape of government looks like. You may think the government needs to get way smaller, but there's still choices to make when it comes to how big, or well, what the shape of the things it does is. And so I think it's an extremely, extremely uh important concept to think about like how uh your values as a conservative have been weaponized over the last 30 to 40 years to basically underwrite the interest of corporate america when in reality there's real values that can be underwritten
1: yeah well and i think this is uh this has been a big problem you know with uh the public appeal of conservatism and of the republican Party is that we've you know traditionally kind of been the party of no just like no 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 we're not going to do this like it would help you but we're not going to do it because it's socialism or whatever. Um and I think that Donald Trump did something differently. Now, he still, you know, had his moments of of no no no, but I don't think you traditionally would have seen uh, you know, a conservative president supporting something like the stimulus checks, you know, or 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 other things like that. And so I think that moving forward our party needs to find kind of proactive solutions to these problems uh problems that normal people outside of the beltway outside of blue states are having
0: yeah i think that's basically right and um if the path to actual popular victory is there like by doing good and popular things uh conservatives can actually govern again in america it's 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 why we can't have nice things right now. You don't have to be shackled down by the chains of corporate slavery. That's a phrase we used in a piece we wrote together at American Greatness not Mm -hmm. too long ago. You can actually advocate for an agenda that substantively uh, improves the chances of strong families, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all being dominant. You should do things that are good and you should not do things that are bad. That is the good things and against (laughs) bad things. That is the policy of American moment. And we hope it's your policy as well. Um, as always please make sure to rate and subscribe the podcast we have tons of new ratings coming in every week really appreciate that um and uh, if you rate five stars and you leave a fantastic question uh, or even a a mediocre question in uh your uh your review on uh on apple podcasts we will answer it on the podcast um it may take a little bit because we're actually banking quite a few episodes right now but uh we think that um you know we we love to get feedback from our audience we've improved the podcast because of some of the things in fact even sam hammond has uh been a huge influence on me uh lightening up a little bit i think he says it's a boomer reference he says less howie carr more howard stern i think is what he says yeah something whatever. like that whoever those rumors are i think he's telling us to lighten up he, he promised us that he would wear a hawaiian shirt when he came to tape and he never actually did that he so, reneged on that deal yeah and he also so you know we've been trying to release on twitter uh, usually a uh, a little promo of the speaker speaking to camera and saying that they're gonna be in the podcast next week he straight up could not get through like one sentence of that so uh presumably uh you'll, you'll just see this drop right away on the monday that it comes out um but yeah once again review go to americanmoment.org find everything about us, send us some money if you'd like, uh, and tune in next week on Moment of Truth. Thank you for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.